Hello, I'm Dave Feinlieb, and this is Beyond the Shelf. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind e-commerce. Through conversations with innovators in the space, we learn the stories of these leaders and their strategies for e-commerce success. You can find out more about how we're helping leading brands and retailers build content at scale and take advantage of our free content health audit at itsrapid.ai. My guest on today's show is Billy Courtney, Commerce Innovation Lead at Accenture. Prior to Accenture, Billy was Head of Digital Partnerships at The Stable, a digital agency that was acquired by Accenture in 2022. Before that, Billy was a co-founder of e-commerce technology company Rich Context, which was acquired by The Stable in 2020. Prior to founding Rich Context, Billy was global e-commerce sales and marketing lead at the Coca-Cola company, customer supply chain lead at Nestle, and worked in logistics at Walmart. We discussed Billy's experience at some of the world's largest CPG brands and retailers, his experience as an entrepreneur, and what he's focused on for the next year and beyond. Please enjoy my conversation with Billy Courtney. Billy, great to see you. Likewise, Dave. Thanks for having me. Tell us what's on deck for the new year. Yeah, so we got through the new year. Um, then I had a birthday, uh, and we had a, a ski trip planned. And so now it's time to, you know, a fresh new year. It's time to get to work. We're we're excited about that. Excellent. Well, you've had a really remarkable career at some of the world's largest brands and retailers, including household names: Walmart, Nestle, Coca Cola. And you co-founded your own digital technology company, Rich Context. Take us back. How did you get your start in the industry? Yeah, it's a rather curious start, actually. Um, I graduated college in 2008, if you recall, in the throes of a subprime mortgage crisis. Um, It was hard to get a job, uh, actually. And I left college without one. And so I, I moved back home that summer and resumed my normal summer job, which was being a server at a restaurant um, and, and moved back to Southern Missouri and was working at a place called Big Cedar Lodge, um, which to be fair, uh, I was making relatively good money uh, as someone who is working at a restaurant on, on tips. And so, however, uh, I knew a couple of folks that had moved to Bentonville and took a job at Walmart headquarters. And so I decided I probably needed to make a jump and get into uh, what would ultimately be my career. And so I applied at a couple of jobs. Uh, I got an interview at one and basically was um, offered the job the same day saying like, hey, can you come to Bentonville? We're ready to bring on new talent and uh, took a job within Walmart Logistics and Transportation and started uh, started in that direction. So it's interesting too, though, in 2008, working at entry level job in logistics, I was making about $13 an hour, a meaningful pay cut from what I was making uh, as a server. But and I kept telling myself that after taxes, each day I'm making less than $100. And so that's where it all started. Um, the origin story of what's been about 15 years in retail, CPG, and um, kind of the digital agency life. What is your takeaway from getting that first opportunity at Walmart? Obviously, that was then a leap from there to many, many other opportunities. Is the insight just go for it or? take the jump or, you know, how do you think about that, that first big, big break, if you will? 
Yeah, I uh, candidly, I was looking at jobs all over the country. Um, one thing I knew is that I I needed to leave home. I needed to do something that was uncomfortable, and um, I I my you know, studies weren't in transportation and logistics. They were in marketing and business. And so um, it was something that I look back and um, I have no regrets, right? Um, it was a curious move, but to to spend a couple of years at Walmart and understand supply chain from their point of view, which is something they are fantastic at, um, and, and, and understand transportation and how freight moves from stores to distribution centers and having that as a foundation for me, um, has always been, you know, the, the kind of the epitome of taking an uncomfortable situation and turning it into what was a, a solid foundation for what would be the rest of my career. I love it. So fast forwarding a little bit, you were at Walmart and then at Coca-Cola, you were heading up global e-commerce sales and marketing before you found a rich context. Talk to us a little about your time at some of these large brands like Coca-Cola and Nestle. What was that experience like and some of your your learnings or insights from that time? Nestle was my first move after Walmart. And what I'll tell you is uh, that was probably where the bulk of my growth happened. I was not qualified for the job. Um, and so I had convinced them I was in the interview process. And so there was a lot of on-the-job training and, and really just figuring a lot of things out, kind of maybe those classes I skipped in in college around how to use Microsoft Access and Excel and had to teach myself a lot of complicated formulas and things like that to help kind of do my job a bit more efficiently. Um, And then, you know, the story of Coca-Cola was just one of uh, a lot of growth. So uh, I was there for five years, um, was fortunate to be in a position to get promoted about four times along the way. And in the last couple of years there, I was actually working closely with our corporate venture capital group. And so uh, we were investing in a lot of repeat founders, whether they're from Tel Aviv to Silicon Valley and elsewhere. And what we were trying to find was innovative people and ideas um, to help us kind of propel our business within e-commerce and our retailers business forward as the leader in the category. And so, you know, this was a time where I was probably one of the first like e-com specific hires uh, that Coke ever had. Right. So how do you sell heavy, low margin beverages online was something we were trying to figure out in a world where pickup and delivery wasn't so prevalent yet. Um, and so kind of by being introduced to all these founders along the way, there's one thing that I think just stood out to me, which was these people aren't that special. Right. There's not like a there's not like a unique, you know, genetic makeup that makes you a founder or not or an entrepreneur or not. And so um, and it took me some reps to figure that out. So I, at some point I figured, why not me? Right. Like, why can't I do it? Right. We if you if you take a step back and you assess your everyday job and you see opportunities and those opportunities don't have a solve, why can't you be the one that solves that? And so um, especially when you know there's built in scale, if it's a it's a problem for Coca-Cola at a retail like Walmart or Amazon, it's probably a problem for everybody. Um, and that was kind of the uh, the origin there. So this idea that you might go do something on your own. But then there's the reality, the leap to actually go do it. Was there a moment? Was there something that gave you the the confidence, if you will, to make that jump and start Rich Context? Inherently, there was one big thing, which I told myself that after five years at Coca-Cola, I was going to make a career decision. Either I was going to stay and maybe move, or I was going to leave the company and go somewhere else. And so uh, I already mentally was prepared to make a decision. 
However, um, as you kind of progress through that uh, and you and, and we see that there's an opportunity to create a business, I had a new decision to make, which was either I'm young enough now, either I leave and, and start this. And if it doesn't work out, I bet someone will pay me more money to do the same job I was doing at Coke in the market that we were in at the time. And so if all else fails, um, I think I was able to get in. I was hopeful I could get another job um, doing very similar work because, again, the 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 world of of e-commerce and digital and all that was very nascent and i and i had i had a unique um skill set that was being developed still in the market what was your biggest surprise or learning when you initially went from some of these very large corporations to doing your own company being uncomfortable with how much free time i had right like we when you we didn't have clients for the first few months <laughs> and so there's a lot of work and a lot of thought and a lot of time just on your own um trying to figure out you know the the right proposition trying to figure out the branding of a company um how do you pilot ideas with brands and try to have breakthrough moments but also just like there's sometimes where there was just nothing to do on a certain day and and you had to either like get comfortable doing nothing or finding other ways to um, kind of uh, exercise your brain. And so, um, and I say that kind of in jest, but there was, you know, truly we're like, okay, what do we do now? Do we just go outside and like shoot hoops for a bit? Right. Like I don't, we don't know what else to do. (laughs) And so um, yeah, those first few months were um, a very interesting pace change from where corporate life was. How did you go about getting your first few customers? We initially built our company on a promise of better content um, delivered to PDPs at retailers. But we carved out a specific space, which was not just copywriting and images, but how do you get better uh, enhanced content that always matches what's in the market? And I'll I'll use Coke as an example. Coca-Cola themselves would support March Madness and fall football and all these big sporting events and all these big um, kind of tentpole events. But if you were a shopper that ever went to a retailer's website and you were on their webpage, you would never see those same marketing materials. You would never see that packaging update reflecting on the website. And so all we wanted to do was identify some of those brands and say, hey, you're putting all this effort into in-store materials, into advertising, on all these things that are happening in the sphere, but the the same experience doesn't match online. We can help you do that. Um, And we were fortunate that we had uh, a couple of folks like General Mills, Smuckers, Samsung, right out of the gate saying like, this is a huge opportunity for us, right? This is when we invest. Um, And so we we were just in in a position, again, it helps being based in Northwest Arkansas, where you can, within a 10 mile radius, you know, speak to about 600 CPG clients. Um, and we had the ability to to get in front of the right people. So at Rich Context, you had this groundbreaking hyphen technology. It was awarded as the top advertising technology by leading advertising publisher, The Drum, in 2020. Talk to us a little about the technology and some of the capabilities that you built once you had kind of settled on this initial vision for what you wanted to bring to the clients. Right. So, so Hyphen really pioneered what modern day we call shoppable media, shoppable content. And what we, what we did is we built a platform that allowed brands to customize shops that can be deployed anywhere, any form of media across any device, 
um, whether it's you know social media, programmatic, email, SMS, it didn't matter. It was something that they owned. And so and the other thing that these shops enabled was a one-click add-to-cart functionality. And so uh, on one hand, we had CPG companies who would, who would uh, basically uh, contract us to go buy media on their behalf and build these shops. On the other hand, we had retailers that we had relationships with as well. And they would give us access to things like item level and store level data uh, and elements that made these shops very dynamic. And so, uh, for example, Hyphen also knew uh, a user's location. So if a user clicked on an ad, Hyphen would render. And if a promoted item from that, from that uh, CPG or that manufacturer was out of stock, we would dynamically replace it with an in-stock item. So, you know, these are things that were ideas we were working on you know, in 2017, 2018, that became incredibly relevant in 2020 uh, during COVID, as an example. Uh, and so we, we actually, Hyphen as a product, basically floated the entire toilet paper and paper towel industry where those products were so hard to find. Hyphen was, a, was able to kind of allow advertisers to keep advertising and only promote where those products were available. So in some ways, a true lifesaver for uh, for consumers, because I remember those days we had household items that you just you could not find and you'd go in search of them and, and you couldn't you couldn't get to it. You thought it would be in stock. Here it wasn't. And you had this great enabler to kind of unlock the value of this data. Yeah, it's, it's interesting now, too, when you when you think about where we are today with Accenture Hyphen today is still an asset that is alive and belongs now to an company that's approaching $70 billion in revenue, right? So it's a, it's a continued asset. It's a platform that lives and breathes um, even beyond anything we'll, we'll have ever done to it. Amazing. Speaking of Accenture and things that uh, we build that uh, that live on, Rich Context was acquired by The Stable in 2020, and then The Stable was acquired by Accenture in 2022. I have to say, it's pretty incredible that your company was acquired not just once, Billy, but twice. How does that work? When we were acquired by The Stable in 2020, we were at the peak of just rapid growth. Right. We, we had a we had a platform. We had the thing that brands are looking for to say, how do I promote my items online? And how do I make them easily shoppable for this delivery and pickup service that's becoming uh, very prevalent in the market? And so we had a lot of inbound interest um, from, you know, people that would have been would have been strategic partners and, and were interested in, in a, an acquisition. But we decided to go ahead and just pause the conversations. Let's just grow. Um, it was interesting in how we met the stable because it was a completely organic interaction. We were just trying to get new business with an agency based out of Minneapolis to have more more integration into Target. Um, little did we know that they were just becoming growth equity backed and about to go on a bit of an acquisition spree. And so um, whenever we ended up having a conversation with them, they effectively gave us uh, you know, a, a deal and a timeline that was incredible that we kind of had to say yes to. Part of that though was we were able to stay on the cap table Right, and roll some equity forward and make a bet, uh, and make a bet that the the agency that was being built there was indeed going to be a, a disruptor, and that is what it turned out to be. Um, uh, they went on to um, acquire four more companies after us. We grew the company, the agency, to about five hundred or so um, people across an, an, a range of markets, really doing end to end commerce services. Um, and then a year and a half later. Accenture um, was kind of looking for this type of shop and, and another deal was made. So yeah, one of those rare situations where 
it pays off to roll some equity forward and, and you get, you know, a couple bites of the apple, as they say. Just to parse apart the pieces that you mentioned, cap table, rolling equity, things like that. In a way, that's talking about how you can still stay on as an owner, at least in part, while the company continues to grow. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So amazing story and also a really fast timeline, 2020 and then 2022. Would you tell us about what you're up to now at at Accenture and what's similar about your role now uh, to what you, you've been doing and also perhaps what's, what's different? So today at Accenture, I lead commerce innovation. And so there's a particular focus on digital, on media, on retail, which is really the background and what Rich Context and the stable really became um, known for. So the primary job of my team is to work both with brands and retailers to help them see, help them see it around the corner on whether that's new technology, modernized ways of working, all that consultancy speak, right? The reality is that's a new, that's a new muscle for me. I'm not a consultant. Um, I have always been someone who has been more of a solution provider, someone who adds value immediately. Um, we, we have something to sell you and we can deploy it tomorrow. But there is something that's interesting now, though, that is while the work that we're doing in, in theory and in practice is largely the same, it's the same topics, the way we're going about it is different. Um, and so you know, transitioning from solution provider to consultant and using kind of real world experience to have a conversation, you know, with CEOs and CMOs now versus, you know, VPs and directors, maybe that we would have been working with in the past. And so um, it's, it's been interesting for me on a personal level to, um, to be a bit more introspective and think about, you know, why, why have you been successful? What have you experienced in your career? And how can you take all of those, all of those elements and, and kind of package it up in a way that says, now, let me, with that, let me help you with your business strategy um, as it relates to retail media, as it relates to digital marketing. Um, and, and that's been a, a huge growth experience uh, and, and very rewarding. Is there a recent conversation that stands out for you with some of these CEOs and other leaders in this digital space? There, there's always a few. Um, one of the more recent ones is really just trying to navigate, not retail media. There's a lot of people talking about retail media, but the nuances of, of how should you invest uh, around things like data clean rooms and, and, and things of that nature. And, and you know, there's, there's a lot of interest in doing so, but what I think a lot of brands are running into is a lot of retailers don't have a lot of knowledge on the subject. They want to they sell you something, right? They want you to participate, but, there's, but they're not bringing a, a competency, a technical competency. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's a bit of frustration. And, and, and sometimes your role is to say like, yes, that is frustrating. And, you know, this is what we need to do to, to, to solve that. Um, and sometimes it's to, um, to be a little more hands-on and say like, well, technically this is actually what you need to do. And like, we just need to, you know, have a different conversation with the retailer. Great insight. So really bringing both that strategic knowledge, but also some technical acumen to these conversations. You got it. Now, I had the good fortune to work with you at my prior company, Content Analytics. We partnered on content health scoring, some content creation. What's changed kind of in the e-commerce landscape and especially in product content, PIM systems, things like that? And uh, what's different now versus perhaps what you saw a few years back? Yeah, this one's really interesting to me. Um, PDPs 
are having a bit of a renaissance, it seems like right now. Uh, in, in, as it relates to you know, a renewed sense of, of traffic driving by way of retail media. And you know, when we first started kind of into this space around content years ago, uh, you and I, um, there was just such a focus on, on getting the right image to show up. Right. Just give me something that's not a 10 year old package um, and 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 be consistent in terms of a copy enhanced content. But make sure you're just participating. And so it was really about participation scores, like what percentage of your pages have X, Y, Z content. Yeah. And what's changed since then, uh, in large part, is not just participating, but like, um, you know, are we optimized the right way? Are we optimized based on uh, sales growth and search rank and all these other elements that um, we can measure differently. Um, and then embedded within that, though, is just the the automated component of it. So content scoring was where you were ahead of the game. Uh, now it's just that on with with a layer of here's your score, but it's not a pass fail anymore, right? You know, w- whenever we first started, it was does your item description have 25 characters, yes or no? And if it was yes, then you got a green, you got a green check mark. Right. And so now it's like more around, are these the right characters? Are we testing the right elements? Are the are they having the right impact on sales? Um, and all of that is is largely automated. Uh and 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 those suggestions are automated. And so, but the thing that has stayed the same throughout all that is just the mandate for accuracy. Um, because data today um has a bunch of uh, layers of APIs on top of it. And they feed a lot of different things other than just a product detail page. Um, and the more you have, you know, digital experiences, whether that is pricing related, whether that's advertising related, um, interstitial, you know, shoppable interstitial related, all these things feed off the same base. And so you never know where that, where that data might pop up. And if you've got a, a funky, you know, item description or an attribute that's off, um, it could really ruin a different uh, touch point as well. Will you parse apart the work around automation and just talk to our listeners a little bit about what that means, what kind of automation you're seeing brands take advantage of currently? Some interesting things being built where that's on top of like a, you know, on top of a chat GPT type of function, but effectively the, the scraping of content, the measurement of content that does one thing, which is here's what we have published. Here's what a a specific retailer um, suggest is the right thing um, to have the right content scores for us. So their own rubric. Uh, and there was a, there, for the longest time, you kind of had brands saying, I, I have an Amazon custom content strategy. I have a Walmart custom content strategy. And then I have an everybody else strategy. And so with levels of automation, you've got, you know, um, you don't have to have humans that go in and, and make all these decisions. You, you, can, you can basically um, say, here's a retailer specific rubric that, you know, measures success. Are we successful there or not? And then, um, you know, have, have some machines go check on that for you. Then what they can also do is, is make suggestions based on um, what's your share of search? What's your share of, of sales? Are these things impacted by different levers you're pulling within content, um, within different pieces of content? And then um, make those edits for you. Um, so again, it was, a, it was a heavy lift where, when humans used to have to go in and go every day, audit their own pages um, make sure the right content was there, make manual updates and, and kind of go through these phases. And that's it's true today in terms of automating that, not just for the copy that's being written, but also for the expanded images that are available and, and changing backgrounds. You see work that Amazon's doing with some of that. And um, it's really interesting how you can scale content quickly. And for some brands, 
that, that might be off limits for them, right? If you think about, you know, a brand that has a lot of equity in their packaging and, and maybe they still want some hands-on, but say you are a rug manufacturer, right? And you've got thousands of SKUs, but you just want to show them on different, different floor or different textiles and things like that. But that all that can be scaled and, it, and production costs are lower and it's heavily automated. Such great insights. Talk to us about the other part of the ecosystem, if you will. You've mentioned that product detail pages are having a bit of a renaissance, if you will. And the retail media is one of the big drivers of that. What are you seeing there in some of your your conversations with CEOs at, at retailers and at brands? We're in the middle of all of it, you know, and it's tricky um, right now. You've got retailers who are truly trying to monetize things. Right. And, and that, and, and first and foremost, it's that, right. How can we find incremental revenue? You've got brands who are in a position where, you know, with cookies deprecating and access to data, access to better audiences, um, you know, that, that world is kind of waning in terms of the legacy ways of doing that. And all, all things are pointed toward retailers today, but I would like to draw a line between Amazon and everybody else. Right. The thing about, um, retailers today and, and Amazon in particular is 100% of your business is done through Amazon.com, right? So it's a, it's an online business and you 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 invest there because there's high traffic, um, high interest, and and you're truly investing to try to get your your products in front of the right um, shoppers who are searching. On the everybody else side, where you've got a brick and mortar presence, still roughly 90% of your business or so happens physically in a store. And you've got a website that doesn't have the same level of traffic. It doesn't have the same level of interest from, from, from buyers. However, there is a strong, highly leveraged, you know, sense of like, you have to participate in retail media. And so, you know, it's, it's a curious position right now for brands um, because you're making an investment decision that isn't just predominantly based on media, pure media results. It's based on a larger discussion you're having around your entire business and all merchandising decisions that are happening primarily in store. And so w- brought within that, you know, it's just loads of complicated questions and things that are hard to measure, um, things that are direct and indirect in terms of measuring. And so, yeah, we, we, we spend a lot of time helping brands navigate that and figure out where value is or isn't um, in the world where you have a lot of competing incentives. So in this world of competing incentives, your advice, insights for a brand manager or someone who's going into the retail media discussion, some pretty big investments being looked at in this in this space, big dollars. What are some rules for the road, if you will, when they're they're thinking about and having those conversations? Your default shouldn't be yes. Um, because there's gonna be a lot of asks or out there around how much you should be investing. The, and, and what's getting committed to is a, is a number that doesn't yet have strategy attached to it. It doesn't have deliverables and expectations attached to it. And, and I think what we saw in the early stages of retail media growth were, were non-media people um, making decisions and committing to large amounts of uh, large sums of, of investment. And so that's kind of been changing a bit. Right where there's there's more media people, there's more agency people, kind of in the room that are helping to guide a lot of these conversations. But um, I would just challenge anybody in general in this space is to do your best to remain objective on like what's really going on here. What are we trying to accomplish? Does this really help move the needle or not? 
um, relative to our, our, from a sales standpoint in our business, from our relationship with, um, with the retailer, all these things are in consideration, but having some objectivity and forming your own opinion is of, of, uh, high value because if, if you kind of relegate yourself to what has become quite the echo chamber in the market, it makes it sound like retail media is just the best thing ever, right? Like, because it's growing when there's a harsh reality that a lot of the growth isn't based on media on its own merits, right? Um, it's all these other things that kind of like um, amount to large investments on behalf of brands. And so um, stay objective and probably bring a, a larger team in um, and try to get strategic early versus committing to investment early. Love it. Such great insights. Well, we've covered a lot of really, really interesting topics today. Before we wrap up, I want to take one more moment to talk about what you're looking at in terms of AI, as well as other technologies, capabilities, themes over the next year and, and beyond? What's, what's kind of on deck and on your mind? Look, I, I am bullish on AI and not, not because it is a buzzword or anything like that, but I just, I think we're just on the front end of it. And I genuinely love how the, the, the general population is familiarizing themselves with things like chat GPT and getting comfortable having conversations with and, and getting information in a different way. And it's allowing it to become a bit more mainstream. So, you know, call it the, the approachability of AI now, I think, um, is going to expedite adoption um, from an enterprise perspective, right? It's all based on consumers. Do consumers understand it? Are consumers familiar with it? Are they going to be able to interact? And is it going to be able to add value? And the answer is is becoming yes faster than I expected. Um, and so I am really, really excited about that. And a lot of our work, um, you know, Accenture has made a huge bet on that. A lot of the a lot of people are making a big bet on that. And a lot of our work is helping you know, manufacturers, retailers, and others kind of um, sort out what does that mean for them. Um, and it's not something that's off the shelf. It's 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 something that is you know unique to their relationship with their consumers um, and expectations for. For growth. And so, yeah, I'm very confident about um, where this is going and it's coming way faster than I thought. And I think you're right. If consumers, if as a consumer, I have this expectation and this familiarity with it, I then want to know how can I put this to work in my business, in my company, in my, you know, in my investments that I'm, I'm making as a, as a business leader. So super interesting area. Well, I've got a couple of fun closing questions I'd love to ask you before we wrap up, if you're, if you're up for this. Let's do it. All right. So first one is, when it comes to your professional life, and I know it's hard to pick only two, but which two people have inspired you the most? There, there are two people that I can pick out. It's funny, though. Honestly, growing up, I was taught to draw a lot of inspiration by learning from other people's mistakes. <laughs> you know what I mean? And just like be very observant and... Uh, uh, versus only what people are good at. But there's there's a couple in instances, though, um, both while I was working at Coke that I thought just kind of changed me forever. And so um, one of those was uh, the guy who hired me. His name's David Rosen. Um, and he just truly taught me how to have a backbone and like always pay attention and always form an opinion in every, uh, in, in every meeting, every room that you're in. But he also had this this very unique northeastern way of saying a lot without saying anything at all <laughs> and, and there's an example um once i i asked him i was like hey i, I'm, I gotta leave early it was on a friday but i had family coming into town 
Um, and he just kind of looked at me and I was standing in his office. And he just stared at me, didn't say anything, kind of shrugged. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to leave now, you know? Um, but what he was saying, again, without saying anything, was like, dude, I don't care. Like, if all your stuff is done, then go. Like, I, yeah, I'm not keeping tabs on you. And so just the fact that, you know, he, he was able just to treat me like an adult, <laughs> right? Um, kind of changed the way that I would end up managing people too. Um, and that, that became like the basis of a really cool relationship. The next one was ultimately was going to be my boss at Coke as well for a few years. He's now, he just is now the CEO at Mr. Beast Feastables company. Incidentally, his name's Alex Zigliera. So if anybody out there is listening and knows AZ, he's a brand guy. All right. Um, and one of the things that he, you know, laser focused on me was developing my own personal brand. Right. And, um, and how do you value every piece of work you create? Um, every, slide you you build in PowerPoint every you know every deck you're, you're you're presenting as if it had your own personal logo on it and so that point of view like completely contextualize all of my thinking around the pride I have in my work projecting aspirations through that work whether it's you know the the quality design my vocals even subtle aesthetics um and I'll tell you a funny story on that one we had our, our first one-on-one and we he went through everything performance wise. You're crushing it. You're doing this great. Proud of you. This is awesome. His one knock on me. He's like, "Have you ever worked with a tailor?" <laughs> and I was, like, he's like, "Because we have to do something about those pants." I was like, "What are you talking about?" You know. Um, but you know, it was it was in jest, kind of. But it was, but it truly was like a, "Hey, man, everything you do is your brand," and that kind of forever changed my mentality. Wow, what great, great insights and uh, things to really, really take to heart. I love those. Well, those are uh, those are amazing. When you do get the time uh, outside of work and family, what are some of the hobbies you like to like to spend your time on? Yeah, I, I love traveling a lot. I love to play golf, um, even golf when traveling. If those two things coincide, even better. Um, but beyond that, it's it's summer times. It's wake surfing uh, at the lake. And in the wintertime, it's, it's skiing in the mountains. Great use of the outdoors and, and uh, great, great activities. If folks want to get in touch with you online, on the internet, what's the best way for them to find you? Yeah, it's best just to track me down on LinkedIn. I'll be, I'll be available and just ping me and we can chat. Billy, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. So many great insights, thoughts, and amazing stories. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. Yeah, thanks so much. Cheers, Dave. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Beyond the Shelf is brought to you by It's Rapid. It's Rapid is the platform Pepsi, Sierra Nevada, Revlon, and hundreds of other leading brands and retailers use to build personalized content at scale. Whether that's images, videos, or product descriptions for their product detail pages, shoppable videos or banners for their digital ad campaigns, or sell sheets for sales enablement, brands that use It's Rapid are able to produce high-quality, on-brand content on average more than 80% faster than category competitors. To find out more, please visit itsrapid.ai. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Beyond the Shelf.